This edition of The Standard is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharma Dean Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ES Audio. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland and this is The Leader. Over the Christmas break, we're looking back at some of the big events of 2021. The year started with the inauguration of President Joe Biden, an event that arguably became better known for the breakout performance of poet Amanda Gorman. On the 21st of January, we spoke to Barack Obama's former speechwriter, Cody Keenum. Political commentators enjoyed contrasting the star appeal of Joe Biden's presidency against his predecessors. Lady Gaga sang the national anthem, compared to 2016, when it was America's Got Talent entrant Jackie Avancho, who later said she regretted doing it. But if the last four years have taught us anything, it's that spectacle is no substitute for substance. And when the band quietened down, the 46th president of the United States had to step up and deliver the most important speech of his life. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. Wow, said the Evening Standard's political editor Joe Murphy in his critique, adding Joe Biden gave the world the sense of occasion it had been waiting for. And yet, for all that speech will be analysed for hints about the future of this administration, what's got the globe talking right now is a five-minute poem delivered by a 22-year-old black woman from Los Angeles. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. Amanda Gorman's books rocketed to numbers one and two on the Amazon charts after that performance. Her words have captured a mood. That's been the aim of politicians and their speechwriters for centuries, like Cody Keenan, who wrote for Barack Obama when he was in the White House. And Cody is with me now. Cody, as a speechwriter for a president, you've probably struggled over a laptop at three in the morning trying to find the right word. What did you think of Amanda Gorman's poetry? It's extraordinary. I mean, it's it's frustrating as a writer when you see it come, it looks like it comes so easily to somebody else. 
Um, I suspect, you know, it, it, it was just as difficult for her to find the words as it is for the rest of us a lot of times, even though it didn't look that way. But she told this beautiful story about America in there with, with all of its with all of our pain and all of our promise. And, you know, I, I think poetry often feels kind of inaccessible to the layperson. It, even to me, I'm no expert in poetry. You know, you, it's, it's, you know what's, what you like when you see it, but she just made it seem so effortless. I mean, a couple passages struck me. I think what's what, the most important part of the speech was, it's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter a nation rather than share it. And in just those 30 or so words, she described exactly not just what America is going through at this moment, but what we've been going through for 400 years. And it's this clash of visions between kind of a closed off, privileged society and a more aspirational one where, you know, we set these high ideals to paper that all of us are created equal. And we've never truly lived up to that. You know, it, it's all of the greatest clashes, internal clashes in American history are between those two ideas. And, and one question, which is who is America for? Who belongs? I mean, you saw it play out in, in blunt, literal detail on the steps of the Capitol just two weeks ago when you had this, you know, basically a crew of white supremacists trying to overturn the results of an election. It's not just this one election. It's this sense among uh, a certain subsection of America that they're losing relative status and relative power to everybody else. And, you know, one of the great questions in American politics right now is, is how do we make it so that it's not, so that America is not a zero sum game? So that, you know, in the words of, of uh, so many of our great civil rights heroes, you know, Dr. King, you know, that our, our freedom is bound up in one another and I'm not free until everybody's free. She really spoke to that clash beautifully and vividly and with no wasted words, whereas what poetry can do is a politician would probably spend 10 tortured minutes, kind of like I just did, trying to explain that, uh, whereas she just stood up there and belted it out. But can a political speech have poetic elements to it? If Amanda had given you some of those lines and put those into a, a more conventional speech, would you go, yes, that's going to work? I mean, some of Joe Biden's speech at the inauguration had that kind of poetic cadence to it, didn't it? Some of it, yeah. It, it, for a political speech, it totally depends on the time and place and the setting. You can't just go down to the East Room of the White House and belt out a poetic speech. It also requires more than a venue too. Obviously churches lend themselves to this, but it, it's it's really the context around the speech. Why are you going to speak? You know, a president can't just say, I'm gonna to go to a church today and give a poetic speech. Well, what's it about? What are you reacting to? What are you responding to? That's why a lot of, a lot of President Obama's more poetic speeches were actually in eulogies uh, after a time of tragedy or trauma um, because you have that opportunity not only to pay tribute to somebody we've lost, but also to speak to the country and kind of pick up lessons from that person's life and say, what are our obligations now that this person's gone? You know, commencement addresses, you can do that, a setting like an inauguration, uh, election night, but, but by and large, you know, 
President Obama gave 3,477 speeches and statements in office, and only a few are actually remembered. Um, and they're the ones that kind of fit into that bigger context when a president needs to be more and fill out that role. How much of it then is down to the actual delivery of the words? Could I mean, you were kind of lucky. Barack Obama could deliver a line. He was all right at that. He was pretty good at that part of the job. But does that make a big difference? Do the words themselves carry without the presentation? It makes a huge difference. And that's actually something you can teach. I mean, you know, good politicians actually practice, you know, maybe behind closed doors. My guess is not knowing for sure, you know, people forget Joe Biden has a stutter. Uh, it's something that he's had to overcome his entire life. It's why he, he you know, people will poke fun at him for repeatedly using the word literally or folks or repeating himself. These are techniques he's picked up over the years to combat his stutter. And, you know, obviously he's been giving speeches now for decades, but, but to step up in a moment like that, when the world is watching you and deliver a speech as well as he did, I suspect required some practice, but I was so impressed with his delivery. And, and President Obama got to, he, he practiced a lot in, in the beginning of his career too. He got to the point where he could just stand up and, and deliver one like he was tattooed in his brain, but it takes effort and practice. And again, a lot of it comes with the moment and you know what's moving you and who's in front of you and the setting you're in. You can't always just conjure up feeling from, you know, kind of a sterile convention hall or auditorium. So what goes into writing something like an inauguration speech or a State of the Union address? How long are you taking to put something like that together? At what point is it actually finished, Cody? Both of them take, I'd say, you know, at, at minimum uh, two weeks uh, probably closer to a month. And that doesn't mean you're working on a nonstop, but you need to start thinking about the story you want to tell. You know, I, I know President Biden's uh, speechwriter pretty well. And he said, you know, Joe knew the story he wanted to tell from the start and infused the speech and worked on it himself, made sure it always stayed true to that story. And what I was struck by watching it is that in so many ways, Joe Biden's personal story lines up with America's story right now. Uh, in a lot of ways, he's a perfect president for this moment in time. You know, Joe Biden is a man who, well, he's, he's first of all a president who has been dealt one of the worst possible hands uh, of any incoming president in history between, you know, the pandemic and 400,000 dead Americans, an economy in shambles, kind of this broken transition where the outgoing president, you know, refused to lift a finger to help. In fact, <laughs> tried to overturn it and incite an insurrection. But Joe Biden has been dealt a really horrific hand as a human being. You know, when he was just a young man, right after he'd been elected senator, his wife and child died in an automobile accident. You know, and his son, Bo, kind of the promise of the family, uh, the, one, the one Biden that everybody expected to be president died five years ago of brain cancer. And he has gotten himself through those traumas and trials with a mix of perseverance and faith and, and family. And to do that has given him kind of this innate optimism. He's been through those things and he still remains one of the more optimistic people you'll ever meet. And that's why, you know, his address yesterday, while, while firmly rooted in the challenges we face, was unabashedly optimistic. And that's not a naive optimism. For Joe Biden, it's a hard-earned optimism that comes from overcoming trauma and trial. And so in a lot of ways, his story lines up perfectly with the story that America needs to 
adopt and live right now. One thing, one other thing that, that struck me, a, a, a game that journalists always play when you're looking at speeches, we do like a keyword count. So how many times has this word been mentioned? You'll be aware of this, Cody. The word unity comes up so often, I've actually lost count. I was trying to do it just before we, we came up here. How much craft goes into that kind of level of repetition to make sure your key point gets across without it becoming... I don't know, like like a, a drudgery of getting through that speech. Less than you think. Um, it's I, I, I was smiling because a, a journalist actually reached out to me yesterday and said uh, he ran through the speech and the word democracy was in this inaugural address more than any other. Is that intentional? And I, I told him and you, a, a speechwriter will, will never do the word count. You know, a speechwriter never sits there and goes, all right, is the word democracy in here 20 times? Is the word jobs in here 60 times? But it is a hint at what's truly important, you know, what the chat, not just the message you're trying to get through, but what are the actual challenges we're facing right now? So I suspect if you went back and looked at Obama's first, you know, the phrases jobs and the economy show up quite a bit um, because that we were at the depth of the financial crisis when he took, when he took the oath of office, the fact that democracy shows up a lot in Joe Biden's inaugural address shows you what kind of the biggest challenge in America is right now. I mean, we, we were lucky to survive the past four years uh, as a democracy. I don't know if we would have made it for more. And, you know, by no means are we out of the woods here. Joe Biden has a lot of work to do. All of us have a lot of work to do. Unity for him, uh, and I have a lot of thoughts on this. Unity is something he actually believes in. It's it's core to who he is. He's It's, it's core to who he's been as a public servant uh, to the point where, you know, even, even pre-COVID, um, during the primary process, he would talk about unity and wanting to work with Republicans to the point where the left of the Democratic Party would attack him for it. Um, so none of that is new to Joe Biden, but he views it as a means to an end. You know, I think he said unity is the path. Um, he certainly talked about it a lot more than he would have had there not been an insurrection two weeks ago but he views it as a means to actually solving our problems. And, and unity he sees not as some Washington pundit, elusive, magical buzzword, but as something that you actually have to fight for. I can already see based on our own experience uh, in the White House, you know, one of the things Obama ran on by no means a chief one was bridging our divides. And the Republican Party saw this, Mitch McConnell saw this, and they said, well, look, if we, I mean, this is documented on Inauguration Day, Obama's Inauguration Day, Mitch McConnell held a dinner where they said, we're just going to vote no on everything he does. That's our strategy. And as a political strategy, it's effective, because if you tell people, if, if the country believes that you can bridge the divides, and then the Republican Party says, no, you can't, well, by, by the end of your presidency, you won't have bridged the divides. And a reporter will ask, why haven't you bridged the divides? I can see that already playing out uh, for Joe Biden. I mean, I, a reporter asked yesterday, you shouted yesterday on the parade route, how are you going to achieve unity? And it's such a silly question because a president cannot solve every problem and we cannot put our faith in him or her to do that. We have to help. How do you, through a speech, or can you, through a speech, reach people who not to put a fine, too fine a point on it, hate you. Can you get to those people? You can try. It's, it's not a guarantee that you're going to get people to come along with you, but you can do your best. I mean, when it comes to unity, Joe Biden will create all the conditions necessary 
for it. The rest of us have to kind of fill it in. Here's what he said about it yesterday. To all those who supported our campaign, I'm humbled by the faith you've placed in us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me in my heart. If you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. That's America. The right to dissent peaceably, the guardrails of our republic, is perhaps this nation's greatest strength. Yet hear me clearly. Disagreement must not lead to disunion. And I pledge this to you. I will be a president for all Americans. All Americans. And I promise you, I will fight as hard for those who did not support me as those who did. That's about the best you can do. Um, you know, and you're never going to get everybody to come along. Unity does not mean that every single person needs to come and adopt your ideas and your principles. That's lunacy. You know, he, on his first day, he put a bunch of executive actions and signed a bunch of executive actions that overturned some of Trump's more worst policies. You know, we rejoined Paris, for example. Um, and, you know, there's a good chunk of the country that's going to be upset at those executive orders. That doesn't mean that Joe Biden is suddenly giving up on unity. You know, unity doesn't mean we have to agree on every single policy proposal. Like I said, in many ways, he's a perfect president for this moment because just by virtue of who he is, somebody who is, you know, kind of truly unvarnished for a politician, somebody who really wears his heart on his sleeve. I think even his critics know he meant those words, uh, even if they never agree with anything he does. And but that's really the best you can do. Um, and, and just finally, from this one inauguration, we've had Joe Biden's speech, which has been pretty well received, actually, in the media and in, in politics as well. Plus, we've had this incredible breakout moment by Amanda Gorman. If you'd been there at the White House watching that, would you go, that Amanda, maybe we should give her a job? Yes. I mean, I'd give her a job in a heartbeat. I actually think she might be superior to my talents. So I should be asking her for one. That's the leader. We're back tomorrow at 4 p.m. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.